Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Meta, a podcast about podcasts. I'm so sorry for the break, but I just had to regroup and work out what was going to happen with this and a daily tech show that I was doing. If you haven't subscribed to that, check it out. It is the help desk. It's coming along nicely. It's really, really fun to do. But enough of that. Let's get to the show you're here for, and that is Meta. And today I've got the busiest man in podcasting, Mr. Mark Fennell, joining me. Mark has made two podcasts for Audible, It Burns and Nutjobs, and he's returned to the ABC to make this new show, Stuff the British Stole, which is a very hard thing to say, by the way. Uh, It's a great, great series, and I recommend you all checking it out. Mark also does a weekly tech show, uh, which is called Download This Show, and he's, he's been nice enough to invite me on once or twice, and I thank him for that. But before we get to the show itself, let's just take a listen. Alright. Alright. <clears throat> I am recording this on my phone in a museum. Oh god, security looking at me. My name is Mark Fennell and I'm from Australia. Also, I'm from India and Singapore and Ireland. Actually, I'm from a lot of places. Places where Britain kinda stole stuff. It's shameless. It's so blatant. And for the last year, I've been on a very strange mission. What happened here 250 years ago? So I realised this is a quagmire. That is an insult. Well, just get over it. People just burst out laughing. Whoa, you know, like, yeah, that was a a good time. All right, so the man who never stops recording goddamn podcasts, Mark Fennell, is back for <laughs> another another episode. Now, Mark, we, we chatted earlier in the year, and, and at, at that stage you had two brand new podcasts coming out, uh, apart from your, your regular weekly podcast that you do. You've got another one now, so tell me all about this new podcast. Well, late last year, um, I was back, back before the bad times. Mm. I, was, um, I was in London. And I, on a whim, I, I arranged to meet up with a historian that I'd heard of, this woman that ran rogue tours of, um, of museums. And it, it sparked my interest. And this is the thing that happens with me. In all, basically, in all the shit that the British stole during years of British colonialism. And I realized that you could do a really interesting series where you start with an object that sits in a British institution and you go back and you tell the story of how it got there. And then I went down the rabbit hole and I realized that actually in the course of doing those stories, you, you actually get to tell the story of colonialism without doing the story of colonialism. I've got sort of inverted commas uh, floating above my head, which you can't see because it's audio. Um, and I realized it was something you could do that was a, a way of telling the story of history and telling the story of how we are today in a, in a very left field way. But what I didn't expect when I kind of launched into the project was that, um, the stories would be so wild. You know, there's a, each episode of the new series goes to, in effect, a different country. So one goes to India, one goes to Nigeria, China, New Zealand, and then back to Australia. 
And the stories themselves and the objects are so weird that it's completely changed the way I think about uh, history because there's such incredible characters to it. So it's it's been, honestly, of all the strange things I've done in podcast land, and I think you know I've done a lot of strange things in podcast <laughs> you land. You have. I actually yeah. think it's one of my favorite, it's actually one of my favorite things. Fantastic. So so w- what are some of the, the artifacts that uh, you're looking into? And and uh, when when you say that this, this uh, podcast takes you all around the world, are you being figurative there or, or was this actually during the before <laughs> times when you could actually get on a plane? No, it ended up, I had full intentions of going to some of these places, but it ended up being, um, we ended up having to get creative with it. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I definitely was in London to begin with. And then, uh, I had to sort of reinvent how we go about traveling, uh, through the medium of sound in, in effect. And there were a lot of creative things we did with it. So, uh, the first episode involves a, uh, a it's a each episode, the, the object is a bit of a reveal. So I'm going to be a bit circumspect with it. So the first object involves a tiger that is murdering a man. Please don't spoil anything if you don't. No. No, 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 I I can be circumspect. So one involves a tiger. Mm -hmm. One involves uh, something that was stuck to the wall of a palace in Nigeria, what is modern day Nigeria. Something involves a dog and a garden. And the dog is one of my favorite stories. Okay. The (laughs) one episode, one episode involves uh, heads that have been removed. And the last one involves a very controversial shield that some people say is the most important artifact to ever come from this country, but other people disagree. Mm. <laughs> so they, but the, I guess the thing of it is that I, a big part of why I want to do this series is the fact that history is messy mm. and it's also really personal too. And one of the things I love about the medium of, of podcasts is that it, it's all nuance. It, it actually encourages, it demands nuance. And this was a really great way of sort of guiding people, not just through, you know, around the world with sound, but also through time and, and recreating things you, you just couldn't do in television, at least not without, you know, like a Michael Bay budget. And the opportunity mm. to kind of take people back into history and recreating moments in history through sound was really attractive too. Oh, that sounds fantastic. So so I imagine that would have been so much fun to, to uh, how much do you recreate a, a kind of a time and a place with, with just audio alone? Uh, it happens a lot across the series. And I'll tell you, actually, one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things about sound is that sound is entirely made up out of close-ups, right? So you build an image of a place with, with small sounds. It's, you know, it's a trickle of water. It's the sound of a gunshot. It's, you think about it, all, the soundscape environment is all close-ups. There's no wide shots. And that's really great from a, from a storytelling standpoint, because it means you can very carefully and methodically drip feed information to manage an image in people's heads. And it's something I learned making Nut Jobs, which is the, the, the series I did for Audible earlier in the year, which is that you, you can use that in the way great thriller writers use it, which is to kind of only give people enough information to, to build a certain kind of image in their head. And then you can gradually give them more gradually give them more, gradually give them more. And that's actually something that's very hard. Like I'm, I'm also a television producer and that's a much harder ask in television um, to kind of give people a sense of space and time. And so if you want to recreate a moment in history, you you can do it, but you can also play with people's expectations. You know, if you, if you hear a gunshot, right, you have an image in your head and it's usually a modern image. But if you hear a gunshot and then you introduce a few other sounds, you can play with people's expectations. And I think that's one of those, I don't think it's an untapped part of sound, but for me, it was something that I hadn't properly played with yet in terms of that. It's almost like a drama skill, I guess. And it was fun to kind of reinvent moments that people think they know because they heard about them in school and, and allow people 
to build up a, a moment in time that perhaps they've never even considered. Okay. And when we talked about nut jobs, you, you discussed how you were using, say, the, the, the tropes of the, uh, the heist genre uh, to, to really kind of tell that story. Is there a genre that you're, you're hanging each episode on uh, for, for this series? That's a really good question. I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I guess, I guess they are investigations, but the difference here is that, oh, that's a really good question. Let me have a think about how to answer that. Because I, I think to some extent, these are all heists too, but they're heists that have a different set of stakes, right? So you're, you're still using the language of mystery. You're still using, you know, carefully controlled revelations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think... I don't think it's as caught up with the sound of it. I think, you know, with nut jobs, what I was trying to play with, I guess, was the, um, you know, it was the language of things like Ocean's Eleven, whereas this in some ways it's more like what is the, like, you know, the, the crown, for example, is about to drop on Netflix. Like what's the, it's almost like what's the alternative version of the crown? How did the crown get so fucking rich? Like that's, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so you kind of le- leveraging off that, you know, that very symphonic soundtrack, these images of finery and, you know, like, really genteel spaces that we think of as museums and it's about going you know maybe starting with that with that image of people's mind and then reversing back or dropping them in the middle of you know Nigeria or dropping them in the middle of of Beijing and going why are we here and then sort of stepping them through history until you end up in a museum so there's all these little things that you can do to kind of take people through through space and time that, that you know, wasn't necessarily an option when working in a series like Nut Jobs because with Nut Jobs it was like it was one crime mm. that we were trying to solve over eight episodes. Whereas the beauty of this, in fact, one of the big appealing parts of this for me is the fact that it's each episode is its own mystery. And I guess having come off the back of two long form um series with Audible, it was actually quite a relief to be able to go, I know what story I'm setting up and I know what story I'm paying off and it has to be done within half an hour. Like there's something like, I don't know if this, this makes sense, but there's something very satisfying about knowing that your beginning, middle and end will be contained within the hour. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you're working on a five or an eight episode series, you've got to constantly keep in your head, you know, what are your setups and payoffs? And are you setting something up in two that you're going to pay off in four? It's a different kind of storytelling muscle in a way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Well, I would imagine that there'd be a bit of uh, anxiety as well in that, uh, in that process of, of sometimes wondering where exactly the the payoff's going to be. How far do you leave it? How far do you trust the audience will come with you? Yeah, very much so. And I think one of the the differences, I think, between making a series for Audible and making a series for the ABC and the sort of open ecosystem is that Audible series uh, play out as one, right? So people, you know, they, they, they get the series and the episodes just roll into each other. And it's been interesting reading feedback, particularly from American audiences, because it's much, both of the series were much bigger in the US than they were in Australia. Um, people are like, people, I think sometimes felt like I, I, I explained things more than I needed to, because in my mind, they're listening to one episode and then maybe going away and doing something else. In reality, the whole thing rolls into one. Mm. Whereas this was, you know, each episode of stuff, the British style is going to come out week after week after week. And so it, in some ways it, your expectations around what the audience are going to remember and what they're going to care about within the bounds of that listening experience are different. Mm. 
Okay. I've got to ask then, if you spoke to a curator at the British Museum, that they would say that there is a certain, that there's a value in having all of the world's treasures in one building uh, that, that, one, that you can see in, in a day. Um, is that addressed at all? Yes, it is. And in fact, um, there's a range of people, not just people that work at, you know, the British Museum, the v Museum that convey that. And even in the very first episode, um, there is a, a historian in the first episode who's like, you know what, this stuff would not have survived. And this is a co- constant theme that comes up. You know, a lot of people are arguing for stuff to be returned back to their sort of ancestral homes, but most of them at some point have to acknowledge that the objects they're talking about simply wouldn't have survived Mm. to this day if they hadn't sat in a British museum. And that's what I mean when I say that there's nuance to these arguments. You know, like if you go back and you look at the contested moments, and when I say contested moments, it almost always means that somebody was murdered or killed in a conflict. If you go back and look at those moments they where those objects were taken, they almost always reflect very poorly on the British Empire, right? Yes. But then you fast forward to now, and all of these, all of the different cultures have to acknowledge that the only reason these objects exist is because they were looted. And I and looted is the term for it, right? And that means the relationship between, you know, whether it's Nigeria and the UK or Australia and the UK, you have to encompass that complexity. And I think that's a big part of why, you know, storytelling matters because storytelling allows you to, to guide the audience on the, on the narrative and help, you know, pump you out at the other end with a sense of like, with, you know, a, a sense of balance, I guess, of like, well, yes, that thing that happened was terrible or that thing that happened, I had no idea happened at all. But now this thing exists and the question is, what do we do next and who does it belong to? And certainly in the case of the British Museum, even if, you know, British Museum curators wanted to give things back, in large part they can't because the British Museum is protected by the British Museum Act. It would take an act of parliament to get some of this stuff returned. That's why they, they often talk about loaning it. And and to the British Museum's credit, they have offered to loan a great many of these things back to museums in various different countries. Some countries react really badly to that. They're like, well, you, you can't loan us something that doesn't belong to you, which I think is a fairly reasonable position to take, but they can't do anything else. In fact, if, to, if you want to prove that something, if you want to mount the argument to them that something needs to return to you, in some cases, uh, you have to say to, um, you have to prove that for example, this object means the exact same emotional, spiritual thing to me as it did to my ancestors. Now, that's really hard to prove if, say, if I, you know, hypothetically, your nation is interrupted by, you know, colonialism and, and a whole new society comes in and moves in. It's very hard to mount that argument. In fact, it's largely impossible to mount that argument. So there's really, you know, I mean, that's that's very sort of complex and legally, but the, the situation of returning stuff to the, the countries, if that is even the right thing to do is messy, almost as messy as the history itself. Fascinating, fascinating. And one of the great things about uh, Nutjobs, one of the things I really loved about that series was the uh, the characters that you stumbled across uh, to tell the story. You, you stood back a bit and let uh, the characters involved in the story actually tell the story on your behalf. Um, are there some amazing characters to look out for this time around? I think the characters are better and stuff the British stole just quietly. <laughs> like, <laughs> are there are some people... I, and I know, like, I know I'm in like hardcore promo mode, and you would think I would say that, but the, my the, my two of my favorite characters of anybody I've ever spoken to in, in episode two, there are these two British cops, one who's of Nigerian descent, one who's white, and they're like my the world's greatest double act, and they <laughs> sort of double handedly managed to correct this centuries old injustice, and they met 
and they, they, the funniest part of it is that they, they're both cops at Kensington Palace. Like they are at the heart of the British Empire, right? And they're like, oh, we should fix this problem that's been happening here in colonialism for years. And they're like the most delightful double act. And I also think I maybe convinced them that no Australian actually drinks Foster's beer. Because you know how like in the UK, everyone thinks we drink Foster's beer and like none of us do. I Mm. think I managed to convince them that we don't drink Foster's en masse in Australia. But there's so many great characters. Like there's this guy who, you know, uh, who uh, in the using the power of sound took me on a tour of, um, of a dilapidated castle in Beijing. And he's just like, he was just the most larger than life, um, personality and we had to do it obviously in a really unusual way where obviously because I couldn't go to China he's walking around with a microphone in these ruins and I'm walking around in a in an empty room with my eyes closed and he's basically guiding me as though I can't see he's like so over there you're looking at this and over there you're looking at that and so that you know it's really important to me when you make series like this that you have great characters and you have a sense of place it has to feel Mm. like a sense of adventure and he was one of these just amazing characters who manages to do both he manages to be an an unbelievable tour guide and just this you know he describes his palace as like neverland the never michael jackson's neverland ranch without the creepy sleepovers i mean you don't find a lot of people describing historic you know places like that you know so i and that you know it's important to me that when you make series like this that you it's it's a series doesn't matter if it's about history or stolen nuts or you know the world's hottest chili it's about people. Everything is ultimately about people and what makes us tick and mm-hmm. why we've set up society the way we have. And actually looking at history through these objects is a really great, I found anyway, it's a, it's a really great engine to, to, to find out why we run society and why people are the way that they are. And so what's the tone of the series, Mark? Because when when I watch the uh, promo, there's this kind of like wistful air uh, to to the whole thing. (laughs) And then I speak to you and you're just like, you know, talking at a million miles an hour and super excitable. So so where where does the tone fit? It's because I'm literally a puppy dog, Peter. (laughs) Um, It's one of the things I liked about making it was that it's equal parts very sad and tragic and dark and then occasionally just weird and funny. Because there are moments in these stories where unbelievably brutal things happened and and horrific things happened. But then at at the same time, there are also things where you sit back and you you listen to somebody tell the story and just be like, sorry, how on earth did that happen? Like, how did they end up, how did that get made? And and this is me being circumspect. You can also tell me like slowing down so I don't seem like too much of a a puppy dog. I guess for me, because I'm an atypical journalist, right? I fell into journalism really accidentally. I believe that, you know, when you make documentaries either for podcasts or for for television, the tone should meld around the characters and Mm -hmm. the stories that you're telling. And luckily with this, it actually offers both, you know, there are pretty significant emotional turning points within the series. And then there are moments that are just bizarre and weird. And I think it's good when a series can encapsulate both of those things. I think for me, the main thing was I wanted to make sure that the sonic environment was really expansive. It's, it's got a, the series has got a very cinematic sound to it, certainly much more than my other series I've had. And because I wanted it to, you want, I wanted you to feel the scale, the scale through time and, you know, globally that it takes you, it takes place all around the world because it is an adventure. Like it's in a way that only sound can really do it, it, particularly during a pandemic um, where we couldn't go to a lot of places. We sort of had Mm. to create this sense of, of, you know, 
not just moving through, through, um, through time, but around the world. And I think, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I feel like we pulled it off, but I guess people will tell me when they hear it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Obviously, your, your day job is with the ABC and SBS, but um, the last two major podcasts that you've done have been with Audible. What was it like returning to the ABC as a long-form podcast uh, as a series I should say uh, what were some of the differences you noticed it's funny because it, it, it's like in from a process standpoint it wasn't that different because I'm still me and the way I work is is pretty much the same um, I've always worked with very small teams so both it burns nut jobs and Brit Stoll were all basically three people teams um, so myself an EP and a producer that's it and then and then and then the sound designer who comes on um, to clean up my bad edits at the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Marty's brilliant and he's so good at making my mediocre edits go, oh, pretty. You know, it's funny, like from a process standpoint, they're not that different. It was helpful to have, you know, it was helpful to have the infrastructure of the ABC to some extent. Um, but at the same time, you know, we didn't get the travel budget of an Audible production. And in fact, even if we had the travel budget, we wouldn't have been able to use it because of course Australia was in lockdown. So in some ways it was quite useful to be able to do it this way. I will still make Audible series. We're sort of in development on a few ideas for next year, but this particular project, I mean, to, to the ABC's credit, they, I don't know, I kind of casually mentioned it in a meeting and they were like, yep, we can do that. I was like, what, really? <laughs> Cause I'd already started making it basically. So I, I'd started making it off the, off my own bat. Um, when I was in London and then they were just, they were just like remarkably keen. So I was like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep making it then. Um, Audible are wonderful and they've been, you know, they've been really great, but I think what Audible is really after in my estimation is big narrative arc, Mm. um, stories that sort of play out in a novelistic fashion. And that's just not what this was. And so it sort of made sense for it to, to sit on the ABC and, you know, at the, to find those great big, um, narrative arcs they take a bit of time so we right at the moment we're sort of doing development on i think at the moment three different ideas that hopefully will turn into nice big beautiful audible projects when borders open up and i can travel and go pick up audio for around the world but you know for the for something like this you know Britstole, for me it's the sort of thing that firstly there's no shortage of objects you could do it for years and years but what i think i like <laughs> most about it show. i mean literally yeah literally you could do a weekly show out of it but i think what was interesting is like it's in some ways it's not and i say this in quite early on it's like this isn't re- the objects may be old but they tell us about today and i think that's the sort of that's the sort of matrix that the story needs to pass through. It's like, okay, how interesting is the story of the object itself? Great. But what does that story tell us about how we ended up with the world we have today? Because that's really the, where the power of the story lives. It's like, what does it tell you about how we've set up laws or how we've set up borders or why certain countries have animosity to another country? Mm-hmm. That I think is re- the real like value of the series because to me these objects, and I say this at the end of the series, I, I think they're a doorway they're a doorway into history. And, and I'm hoping that once people, you know, get through each episode, 
they do rush off to that thing that we always do when we watch like biopics or good documentaries, you rush off to Wikipedia and you start Googling it and you start to want to know more about how we ended up with society as we have it today. That like, that would be for me, like the ultimate goal. If people get to the end of an episode and go, I need to know more. Because that's, you know, that's the joy of making something like this. That's what, that's how I felt when I first saw some of these objects. I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> how the hell did that get made? Or how the hell did that end up here? I'd like to know more. And I think when you have that first impulse, you sort of know. You sort of know that you're onto a winner. Over the years, you know, I've followed you on Twitter for many years and I've seen you posting um, timelines, big, big chunky audio timelines uh, in, the, in the past. How much of the editing process do you do you take on yourself and and how much of that do you feel is is part of the storytelling technique well it's funny this one i actually edited all of it um and that's actually a, a kind of a weird first for me when it comes to podcasts because the i mean i edit download um download the show which um obviously is on is, you know it's, it's just a relatively simple fun panel show that i do for rn but for both it burns and nut jobs because they were real international productions where the producer was in the UK, I was in Australia and the EP was in the US, you know, we were very, very hands-on and, you know, I'd be, you know, changing scripts and, you know, redoing audio here and there all the time. But the actual Pro Tools edit happened with the producer in London on both of those series. This one, um, I, I had wanted to get my fingers dirty basically because I, Mm -hmm. I've grown up editing. I came up through community radio where you just do everything. And even today, like on the feed, 99% 99% of everything you see me do on, on SBS is the feed I've cut. And that's because I like it. I like, you find narrative opportunities, you find aesthetic opportunities, you find links between characters and places when you have the footage in front of you. And I wanted to do that with this series because I felt like I'd been living and breathing it <laughs> for so long. Um, the other thing is the producer I was working with got poached Mamma Mia. So <laughs> at, at, like at the exact, at the ex- and she's brilliant and I love, and she's awesome. But it was like at the exact moment where we finished the, um, the primary recording, she yep. got this job and I'm like, that's so awesome, Zoe. I'm so happy for you. I will do the editing. Cause there was like, <laughs> you know, like she, the, you know, she and I sort of knew the series backwards and it was just going to take more effort to bring somebody else on board. So I'm like, it's fine. I've got it all. Let's just start cutting. And you know, I, I have a process with this sort of stuff where, uh, when I pitch a series, I pretty much write out the episodes almost as pros. And then when I go off and I do the interviews, we chuck it into a transcription software. And then I start to basically take that document, that prose, and I start to populate it with transcription grabs and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it becomes a living document. So you put in those grabs and then from that, when I'm happy with that, I actually take those bits of audio and I actually put them into Pro Tools and I listen to them and I look at all the VO that I, the voiceover that I put around it and go, well, that's clearly too much writing. That's not enough writing. And so it, it's very, you know, listening to that, you kind of get a sense that it's quite organic. And I think it means that when we're flowing from, you know, from voice into, you know, uh, interview tape and then back out again. It's kind of a living organism. It's uh, and and you know, working with the audio directly with the audio, what's going to sound weird? What's going to sound like it's out of balance? Like there's too much there's too much interview and you and you've lost you know you, you're losing sight of the actual overarching story that we're aiming for. You need to interject here. Do you know what I mean? Like you kind of get a, a, a sense of rhythm, and then it's a constant refining and. Um, a lot of that comes from once you've put the right music or the right sound effects in, you get a sense of whether the pace is off. Have we spent way too long with this one person or not nearly enough time? 
that starts to become more apparent for me, but only if I can hear it. And I, and being able to look at it all on this absurd, you know, timeline for me actually mm-hmm. helps. I, th- I think I, I feel better about the projects I'm working on if I can see them. One of the really challenging things for me, particularly about It Burns, the first Audible series, was that every time an edit would come back in, I'd have to go for a half an hour walk to listen to it all in context. And it was good in the sense that you really listen to everything as a listener. You're not looking at waveform as 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 you're doing it. But um, it did also teach me how badly, like just personally as a weird control freak, I needed to be able to see what I was working on. Doesn't reflect enormously well on me, does it? Like I'm a gigantic control freak. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I honestly think that, you know, the editing process is so much a part of the storytelling process. I mean, it's it's an obvious thing to say, but it is so true that you, it, that's why anyone who's ever done any editing at all in their life would know that they would never go on a, a reality TV show because you know how much can be <laughs> can be sculpted in the edit. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I find it really fascinating to, to speak to someone who spends so much time holding on to that. And, and it brings me to the next question of, like, when do you sleep? When do you see your kids? What, <laughs> uh, you, you've got a, a weekly show that uh, you've got a TV show, a radio show. You've re- released more podcasts than anyone else I've interviewed this year. um i do see them um you've also got to remember the most of the work i do i do at night after they're asleep um so yeah look this there's i uh, there's no question this year has been strange in terms of the i mean it's been strange for a range of reasons but for me i've done a lot of work that's come out in a relatively short period of time of of this year i tend to do my best work between sort of sort of 10 o'clock and 1 a.m and then i'm in bed from 1am till sort of 6.50. That's, that's generally, and the, by that point the kids are up and they need you know, lunches made and whatnot. And so you can kind of, I've been operating that way for a while and it hasn't, I don't think it's, put it this way, like there, there is an argument that I don't sleep enough and I get that, but if I don't make things constantly, I get weird. <laughs> so for me, it's a balancing act. Like I need but I think I've got a bit of career ADHD. Like I need to keep making new things or I need to keep trying new things. Otherwise I get strange and annoying. And it, like my wife is just like, can you just like, you're annoying me, go make a thing. Um, <laughs> but it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act. And um, this year, you know, I say this every year, like this year probably shows what the limits are of, of what you can do. But at the same time, when you're working on something that you think is is cool and it's worthwhile and you're just, and you're learning things in the creation of it and you're happy with how it's churning out. That creates its own, its own energy. Sorry, I'm starting to sound a little bit Pete Evans there, aren't I? But like, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it gives you its own sort of, um, uh, propulsion to when you're working on something that you genuinely think is cool. And there's a moment I find with everything that I work on, whether it's like a TV documentary or or a podcast, usually you meet a, a person quite early on in the process. And you finish talking to them and there's just a a switch that goes off and goes, yeah, this is the thing that'll work because that character is so engaging and, and so, and, and does such a good job of opening up this world. I may have said this to you in the past, but I do tend to think that like the, the way I work best is, um, I like to find stories where it's a small door that opens up into a big world and when I find a person that is basically the key to that door, so they can take like this weird, quirky one line um, idea and instantly open it up to bigger ideas, uh, 
um, you know, of where we came from or, you know, where, you know, where our food comes from or, you know, pain in the case of, you know, it burns. When you find the person that can be the, the sort of the, the door handle, for lack of a better term, from that small idea to that big idea, that's usually when you know, for me anyway, that a series or a story is going to work because it's going, because that person will take you from a sellable one line into something that feels like it's an expansive um, landscape. And I think that's usually the moment when I go, yep, this will work. And for me, that happened. It happened to sitting in a weird library in London. I went, oh yeah, this is, this is wild. This is going to work. Um, and then it was just a case of convincing somebody to, <laughs> to let me actually do it. <laughs> well, you, you somehow managed to do it every, every time you get an idea like this. Oh no, no, there's a whole bunch of ideas that don't get up. I should say also, oh, okay. like, there's a whole yeah. bunch of, there's like a whole Google drive of like, I call them like embryonic ideas. And that's also like code for failed ideas that Mark couldn't convince anybody was worthwhile doing. <laughs> um, feel free to get in contact with me if you'd like me to pitch you my failed ideas. <laughs> Well, God, I'm sure people will be knocking down the door after that pitch. But um, <laughs> being the professional podcaster that I am, just before we recorded, I changed microphone stands and it broke halfway through. So I've been holding up my microphone the whole fucking time. No. God <laughs> yeah. almighty. Uh, yeah, it, it was a strange experience. Like trying to do all that stuff with um with remote recording. Honestly, like I think we pulled it off most of the time. But mm-hmm. it was, there's so much technical, like, you know, there's so much technical stuff involved in, in getting decent quality audio at their end and our end. We did a mixture of stringers and people self-recording and, you know, mm-hmm. people and doing a lot of stuff with Atmos out in location to kind of give it that sense of momentum. Cause I just didn't want to do a series. that was just a bunch of talking heads. You, you want to take people on an adventure. You want to give them a, a sort of a sense of, of movement, I guess was the the main thing for me that the story kept on driving you forward. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. What well, what were the technical ways you did that by the way, uh, the local records, did you send people out like little, uh, zooms or something like that? We, we talked about that. My EP who I work with in the U S he's been doing for, for the audible projects, he's been doing a lot of that, but with us, you know, because all of the talent, a lot of the talent was overseas, right? So it's just not really feasible to, you know, send them a microphone mm-hmm. in the mail. So we sort of, what we did was we arranged all of the talent into tiers, basically like primary talent, um, and secondary talent. And it wasn't that they were like more important or less important to the story. It was secondary talent who we thought was pretty technically savvy and could record themselves with, um, either a phone or a microphone that they already had. And then primary talent who were like, absolutely need them in the series. Not, not sure they'll be able to record themselves, send a stringer. Mm-hmm. So we sort of, you know, divvied up a lot of, you know, not a huge ABC budget to kind of get local stringers and, you know, in the U S the UK and you know, other places to get a mic and New Zealand and to get a microphone in front of them. Um, and anybody who was doing anything sort of active, like out and about, we wanted to make sure they had a decent quality mic in front of them. Um, and then there was sort of like tertiary talent who were sort of talking head talent that you needed it like a third way through an episode to kind of explain a thing with some of them. We let them record in their phones. The main thing for me is I just didn't want zoom. I like, I feel like there, by the time this comes out, there will be such zoom audio fatigue and I just didn't want to do a series that was, and I get it. Like some shows it's fine. But for me, I was just like, you know, it's a weird show in the sense that like, it's been recorded on pretty much every medium you can imagine. Like stuff that's been recorded on phones, microphones, zoom, like it's got everything in there. But the important thing was that it never get, for me, I just didn't want it to get it 
get it in the way of the story, you know, like you, the sto- and, and the, the listener experience. And I think that's half of what it comes down to. It's just like putting the listener's sense of adventure or sense of curiosity first and removing as much as possible the obstacles to that. Um, at least that was my sort of approach to it. And you know, I guess we'll wait and see if people like it or not. Not only do you do all of this kind of stuff, you also got to appear on Bluey. And I think that's, that's what hurts the most. <laughs> Um, so yes, this is a strange and weird story. So I, um, I was doing a series of interviews with, um, with, uh, a bunch of interesting Australians for something for Telstra for a podcast, actually, ironically for Telstra. And I was interviewing Joe Brum, who was the creator of Bluey and you and I both got small kids. So, you know, the, the power that Bluey exerts over the young children of Australia and Mm -hmm. indeed the world at this point. And I casually mentioned to him, actually, I wasn't casual at all. I was like hyper, <laughs> like an f- absolute fanboy. And I said, I have no higher career goal than being a voice on Bluey. And I just blurted it out. And he's like, oh, yeah. Can you say the word yes? I'm like, yes. No, nah, can you say it better? <laughs> and I said yes a bunch of times. And I honestly thought that I was, he was just being very generous and doing a bit for the podcast. Fast forward a couple of months. And I never, like, we never thought about it again. We just didn't think about it again. Fast forward um, a couple of months and I get this like panicked, not panicked, but like really excitable text from my wife. Cause we discussed it and we didn't really like, I didn't sign a release form. I guess it's not going anywhere. She's like, you're on Bluey. I'm like, <laughs> sorry, what are you talking about? Imagine that in text form. I'm like, what are you talking about? She sends me a screenshot of the titles, of the of the credits rather. And I was like, oh my God, they actually included it. And so that's how I, and to be honest, like I'm a terrible actor, but you shouldn't give me anything more than that. But it's like, just to be one single syllable on Bluey, I have never been more famous to my children. My children, you know, obviously I've been on television in some form of, you know, since they were born. I cannot tell you how few fucks they give. Like it's in <laughs> negative integers yep. until I was one voice on Bluey and that's it. I like, you know, there are other more famous, more interesting people that have got better, um, better roles. Like I think Lee Sales has done a bunch of characters and, and whatnot. I have no aspirations beyond the one word. I was stoked with that. And um, as far as like my entire voice career goes, I'm happy to retire <laughs> based on that alone. Yeah, when I was speaking to oh god, who did the uh, the podcast uh, about the the Christian band? Oh, um, Megan Washington. Oh, Declan Fay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I was chatting to Declan about that, and he said that um, Megan Washington came around to his house at one point to do some recording, and his kids. Uh, he lives just around the corner from me, actually, and and his kids walked in and were like, oh, Calypso, Calypso is in our house. <laughs> She's so good though. She's got such a wonderful, like, she, and obviously she's got an amazing singing voice, but there's a sort of, um, there's a huskiness to her speaking voice that just sounds, mm. but it's lyrical at the same time that just works perfectly for the Calypso characters. If you're listening to this and you don't know who we're talking about, fair <laughs> enough. Calypso is the, um, is the preschool teacher in, in Bluey who is like very warm and lovely, but also a bit like non-committal in a way that I totally recognize when, you know, anybody that works in early childhood and has to deal with a gazillion kids, there's a sort of light touch to that personality yeah, yeah. where they're sort of like, I'm here and I'm caring and, 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 but at the same time, figure it out yourself. Yeah. And a lot, yeah. Figure it out yourself. That's exactly what it is. And she just conveys all of that in a voice that's, that just works perfectly. 
Ah, it's an incredible, incredible show. Well, if Stuff the British Stole is as good as Bluey, I will be very, very happy, Mark. Um, thank you so much for your time today, mate. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you. God damn, you're excitable. <laughs> it was too much, wasn't it? <laughs> no, 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 no. I love, I love the passion. I love the passion. Thank you for talking to me. I appreciate it. <laughs> My thanks once again to Mark Vanell for joining me on Meta today. And if you like Meta, please rate and review it in iTunes and tell a friend about it. Uh, Maybe someone who is really, really into podcasts or someone who is just trying to find a podcast to check out over the summer break. Uh, That's what we're here for. My thanks to Lauren Watson for the amazing artwork and to James Smith, who actually did edit this one this time. That's one of the reasons why this show is out is because James finally convinced me to let him do the edit. And I'm sure it sounds much, much better because of that. So thank you, James Smith, for twiddling the knobs. And I will speak to you next week. Have a great one. See ya. Recording this on my phone in a museum. Oh, God, security looking at me. My name is Mark Fennell, and I'm from Australia. Also, I'm from India and Singapore and Ireland. Actually, I'm from a lot of places. Places where Britain kind of stole stuff. It's shameless. It's so blatant. And for the last year, I've been on a very strange mission. What happened here 250 years ago? So I realised this is a quagmire. That is an insult. Well, just get over it. People just burst out laughing. Whoa, you know, like, yeah, that was a, that was a good time. time. You see, sitting in museums and galleries like this across the UK are certain objects... Objects that were taken in the days of the British Empire. I've been tracking down exactly how it is they ended up here. And let me tell you... He was in desperate trouble. It is wild. Dramatic and very bloody. You look them in the eyes and it's tears. You are weak. There's no way to stop it. The tiger's roaring, the man screaming. We had police escorts, we had cars in front of us. Thousands of people are murdered. It is really bizarre. The savagery. We were left here to die. There are conquerors and victims. And those stories are going to take you on a smuggling operation to Nigeria. They were stolen, they were looted. You don't think that's enough? You go ahead and you pillage. There was hand-to-hand fighting in the streets. Into a war in India. I mean, if somebody literally dug your father's grave up. Once a king is vanquished and his entire family has to suffer. To China. This is your fate. Things to do when you're an emperor and you're bored and you've already conquered Tibet a couple of times. Because there is a mystery, they actually belong to all of us. You'll get tattoos in New Zealand. You feel different, there's no doubt about it. And all the way back to Australia just surrounded in flames. He would often fire a gun and deal with the consequences. You know, I was just being shot. Shot, shot. To the British people listening, please don't feel personally attacked by this. Thank you for the railways and the legal system and the smallpox and the greatest karaoke song of all time, Wonderwall. We're cool, but there is this whole other side to history. This was one of the great crimes of the 19th century. People are fainting in horror at the sight of it. You could see the the depth of of hatred. You see, these objects may be old, but they tell us about today. And I think it was that that evening when I actually opened up that letter and it was just, can you please help us? It appeared to be an injustice. 
from laws to borders to wars. Here, Your Highness, we're so happy to have gone to war to protect your good name as the world's largest narco baron. I mean, come on. <laughs> and all of it has shaped who we all are today. Knowing where you come from gives you confidence as to what you do and who you are as a person. We're here 250 years later still. The simple truth is that the impact of the British Empire, the, the colonialism, it was messy. It's the marker of a time in history. And that's what I'm going to try and make sense of. How we ended up with our world told through a shield, a mask, a spear, just some stuff that the British stole. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 